You're listening to the Set the Tone podcast with Anthony Manuel. Every week, I'll be talking to a new guest with a refreshing perspective on body, mind, and spirit to help you see the world and your life in a slightly different way. I hope these conversations inspire you and help set the tone for a new way of being. My name is Anthony Manuel. I am here with one of my very closest friends in the entire world, Erin Evans. Erin is a life coach. She is a yoga teacher who hosts yoga teacher trainings around the world. She's currently writing her first book on the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, and I'm really, really excited to have her set the tone for this conversation today. So Erin, did I miss anything? in terms of your credentials? (laughs) Well, you know, you forgot to mention that I'm a mother. Right. Right, so that's a big key piece. I I included that in the Instagram post. You're the mother of the coolest kid that I've ever met, was I think what I wrote exactly. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's perfect. And how I describe myself is 50% yogi, 25% prairie girl, and 25% gangster rap Nicki Minaj. That's me. And for people who are tuning in from the States, because I know No Filter is primarily a U.S.-based company, uh, Prairie Girl is referring to the Saskatchewan. I think you're from Saskatchewan, right? Well, technically, you were born in Africa, weren't you? Yeah. My friends always joke that the the night or the time spent with me is not enough if I haven't mentioned that I was born in Africa. So they can get that out of the way. Yeah, it's it's off the table now. We can move on. Um, so I'm really excited to talk to Aaron about a lot of things. I'm like talking about you as if I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to an audience right now. It's real. It's good form, right? But I'm, I'm excited to talk to you because one, you're writing a book right now and you're writing a book on my favorite topic, which is the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. It's, um, for those who don't know, the Yoga Sutras are the required reading for any yoga teacher who does a a teacher training with the Yoga Alliance, and it is the sort of foundational scriptures of of yoga philosophy. And, you know, I I wanted to talk to you, what was your, like, I know you've been wanting to write a book for a while, um, approaching writing a book about something so foundational in yoga. Because it scares the pants off me, because it's a topic that's so dense and has only ever been covered by scholars and uh, folks that are likely more quote unquote qualified than me. I'm also super fascinated by it because it has changed my life. And initially when I was required to read the sutras, I would crack them open and immediately I would be so bored and I would fall asleep. So then I thought, okay, so maybe I'm just an asana yogi, a a physical practitioner of yoga. And then over the years, I just kept going back to it in little tiny tidbits, and it would blow my mind. And then having conversations with other people about something as simple as the first yoga sutra, which is yoga happens now. And they would start to help me develop my ideas further. And yeah, I think that it's never been done in this way. And it is hopefully going to be accessible because we we need this information more than ever. And I think it's written in such a way that it's almost a secret and it's hard to get it, to digest it. And now with everything happening in the world, I I just I think it's really important information for all of us. 
I know reading, if you read just the Yoga Sutras without any commentary to it, it's very like straightforward without any explanation. It's like sort of matter of fact aphorisms. It's pretty short. Like if you just read the sutras without any of the commentaries, you probably do it in like 10 minutes, right? But in that 10 minutes, you're kind of like sitting there, it's like, what the hell am I reading, right? So, um, you know, you're saying that you're you're translating it or you're not necessarily translating, but you're interpreting it and explaining it in a way that's never been done before. How are you explaining it in a way that's different than the way that you've read before in the past or the way that other authors or, or quote scholars might have approached it? I don't think anyone's ever taken it through the lens of their own personal experience being a householder. I've never really heard great sages or, or yogis or teachers really teach these concepts through these aha moments they've experienced on their yoga mats or making love. And I want to know that I'm living my yoga. So even in writing, I've only tackled the first pada, the first uh, uh, chapter or foot of the book. And it's helped me integrate it and to know that I'm actually living this like huge gamut of yoga. And I mean, it's all laid out for you in that very first Yoga Sutra, and I think about it like a, like a tapestry, right? Their sutra is thread, so it's this massive tapestry. And when someone's weaving a tapestry, they know what they want it to look like. So they're working backward to thread the red and the pink and the yellow. And so I wanna unweave it. And all it is is techniques and practices to get us back to now. This magical vanishing moment of right now, you and I. So there's, okay, so presence, that, that presence with now, that, that ability to stay here in your current experience, that right now it's very easy for you and I to kind of be in the flow because we're just chatting with each other. We're doing a podcast. Maybe we have a peripheral understanding of like, oh, we have to talk because we're on a podcast and other people are listening. So it's like, there's like a peripheral distraction, but we're still pretty present with each other. Um, but why do you think presence is something that people are seeking? Like, obviously, if people are th like they want they want more presence, they want to be here now because they aren't right. Like it's, it's like an alleviation of something. What pulls people out of the present moment? Like, what are the things that are at least even in your own personal experience? What are things that you have that pulls you out of the present moment that yoga helps you with? Okay, there is a quote. If you want anxiety, get a future. And if you want depression, get a past. And I see so often with my clients, myself, my friends, that we have this projection of what we believe the world is and who we believe we are in this little matrix. And to be present actually with you, Anthony, means that I'm meeting you right now, not with our experiences climbing mountains or um, having laugh attacks or sharing dinner, but it's like this moment because you're totally different than you were when I saw you two days ago. And so being present and in my own experience of trying to truly live my yoga philosophy is getting out of what in the yoga sutras they call these vrittis, fluctuations of thought that keep us spinning and turning on this wheel of suffering. And I, I think it's it's nearly impossible to be in the now because I have a past that I'm carrying forward and a future that I'm dreaming about. 
And, and the thing is like this moment, yes, everything that I've ever done has brought me to this moment. And yet I don't know the, the mystery that's available to me that's going to be totally different than what I have anticipated or what I have experienced. So because I'm such a kinesthetic person, for me, the physical practice of moving my body and breathing and feeling my fingertips and knowing the qualities of my mind and, and using them to keep myself present, it's, it's transcending the yoga mat and the making love and the good conversations. And I'm feeling it when I'm with a stranger. I feel it when I'm in the grocery store, when I'm driving in my car and actually like feeling my steering wheel and noticing the cars. So it's, it's, it's so, can I swear? Yeah, of course. It's no it's filter. Just, it's no filter. Okay. Oh, right, right. It's just so fucking exciting. To be present is <laughs> so fucking exciting. And it's taken, it's taken me years to get here, but I really truly believe that I can't even imagine how great my life's going to be. And I just feel so on path, on purpose when I'm in the mm. moment. I, I really agree. So the, the, the notion of, you know, you, you get depressed and you get, you, it's harder for you to move forward because you're, you know, too busy remembering your past to notice the present, or you're too busy projecting into the future. Sometimes I find like, I will project my past into the future as in like, because I've been hurt in the past, I expect I'm going to be hurt again. So it's harder for me to trust people or because I failed at something or because, you know, the, maybe the yoga class was too tough, then the next yoga class is also going to be tough and I'm going to be embarrassed again, or I'm not going to feel good, or I was sore the next day. And I, I don't want to avoid that. And I know the yoga sutra talks about, uh, you know, preferences and aversions as an obstacle on the path, but that's, that's a, you know, becoming present is is i think the point right there's there's that the, you, you kind of avoid the fluctuations of the mind and then yeah what i'd like to do because some people here i know aren't familiar with yoga and the yoga sutras you said you finished the first pada for people who aren't familiar with the yoga sutras at all the yoga sutra is divided into four padas um, or four chapters each one covering a different element of the practice and what its results are. So do you want to give us a brief overview of what the four padas are? Yeah, I might have to crack open my textbook. Um, so basically the final point of it all is samadhi. So samadhi is total absorption, flow state, where time dilates and we totally land. So in the first pada, we're we're kind of working backward on how does one land in the in the exact moment. Then the mm. second pada is uh, sadhana, which is the actual practices, the breath work, the shapes we make, the meditation. It's also got the eight limbs of of how to live, meaning like non harming, being truthful, don't don't hoard. And then the final pada, I don't know what the third pada is. I think it's magical powers. Yeah, I was gonna say, isn't it the cities, like the, the gifts or the, the basically the supernatural powers that you gain through practice? Yeah. Exactly. And then the final pada is kavaya, which is total freedom. And, right. and what I love about that is like, when you get pissed off, when you get a visceral experience in your body, uh, lust, 
envy, you know that you are not free. And so the whole point of any practice that makes you quiet is that you're going to figure out where you're not free and how to get free of, of getting those charges of, of anger or animosity or inadequacy or fear. So the, the four sutras, they kind of feed into one another and you wouldn't necessarily have to read one and then two and then three and then four. You might jump around between the four of them. Um, but for me, the bread and butter, what I'm like really interested in navigating right now is flow state chapter one and practice chapter two. Mm. I, I always gravitated towards the second part of because it's so practical. It's, you know, it's the, the actual practice, the way that I've kind of interpreted how they flow into each other. You sort of start with the end, like you said. I liked your tapestry analogy where it's like you start, you know how it looks and you start from the end and you weave your way back up, right? So you start with, hey, look, samadhi, this state of freedom, this is the end point of yoga, right? This is your, this is your final destination. This is how you're going to arrive at that state. This is the end point. And then you move into the practice, like this is how you get to the end point. This is where you are. This is how you travel. So it's like, this was the goal. This is how you get there. Oh, and by the way, along the way, the third pata is you might get all these supernatural powers, right? <laughs> Here are all these like gifts and these like, what are some of the, what are the, some of the supernatural powers that the Yoga Sutra says that you can have? Okay. And this is why I haven't tackled them in my book, because I don't necessarily know that I've experienced them. You can wax in magnitude. Okay, sounds cool. Uh, you can become so minute and so small, you're the size of a pebble. You can go into somebody's head and hear them think. Um, you can uh, sense outward and people can feel that you're sensing them. And there's levitation in there. But what I think the thing about the magical powers are, it's, I talk a lot about dharma and karma, and sorry if you're not a yogi, but this is still relevant to you, but your dharma is where you're supposed to be headed in this lifetime with the personality that you have and the gifts that you have. So we are trying to figure out what our path is, and karma are these little uh, reactions that we create with all of our actions. So what we're trying to figure out is, how do I create the least amount of karma, knowing that everything I do is going to create karma, to stay on my path and get to my, my purpose? And my purpose is to be free. My purpose is to be present, right? And, and I do it through being a parent and writing and teaching and practicing, but present with the plant in front of me. But when we have magical powers or cities like the ability to read somebody's mind or become so big everybody feels you is that you could so easily get stuck there and if the point no. is to get oh no 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 please please continue please continue the point so is if to the get. point is to use my personality my gifts to be free of my my karmic implications my desires my attachments um then i want to know where I might get trapped into my very human qualities. For instance, right. I love to do handstands, right? And, and I could easily get stuck there and say, oh, cool, like I've reached my goal. I can do a handstand and hold it for like, like a whole bunch of minutes. 
<laughs> but the thing is, that's not my point. My point is that I want to be free. And, and if I, if, if I start to, to linger and live in these superhuman powers, that's not deep enough. What I'm right. looking for is God. What I'm looking for is freedom. Well, and I think that's why the fourth, that's why it's sequenced the way it is, is because you have the practice and then you have these outcomes where your life improves so much, but the fourth pata is sort of a reminder that you're, you're seeking samadhi so that you can get freedom ultimately, right? And I'm going to challenge you on the idea that you haven't experienced any of these superpowers because they don't necessarily have to um, be literal in terms of a physical transformation. And the reason that I think that you have them is because I've experienced them. And you, you as a presence, when you teach yoga, fill an entire room, right? And so you're talking about one of the superpowers, one of the cities is that you can grow and you can shrink. So your energy grows and fills an entire room and then you're reading the minds of every one of your yogis. You're one of the most intuitive people that I've ever met. You can look at someone and basically know what they're thinking. You can sense the, you know, um, intentions that are not spoken by other people. You have the presence and the, the, the awareness and the emotional intelligence or the supernatural sense of understanding what a person is after or what a person's really thinking. They'll say one thing, but you'll know what they're actually thinking. And I've seen you do that over and over again you know, in our friendship with other people and, and, and more. Also, you have the ability to shrink down because when you're done your class, you don't want everyone to come and, you know, be personally involved with you. Do you have the ability to have your personal life or your, or your visibility shrink down to like virtually nothing? You can, you, you can expand and you can shrink your energy basically at will. You can give as much as you need to and then you can take it all back and shrink down and protect your energy. Um, the levitation, maybe you float through your life with grace, even though you have a gazillion things that you have to do. Um, either that or you're secretly floating and I've just never seen it. <laughs> I think sometimes, you know, I know a lot of people, uh, want to romanticize the idea of mystical powers or, or, you know, equate it to like the miracles that, you know, Jesus or some of the yogic saints of the past performed where, you know, yogis apparently rose from the dead or they created copies of their own body and they do these incredible things. But when you are present, when you are free, it's one of these things that like, if you were thinking about how to be present and powerful to teach a class, you wouldn't be right. You just are. And that's the whole point is once you're free of these things, then, then they happen. Like if you're, if you're obsessed with one of these powers, you don't get them. Yeah, and, and thank you. That's thank you because now maybe I can tackle that third pata. <clears throat> but I often think about it like a, a mountaineer. And when you're you're at the base of a mountain, you see a ton of brush and tree and animals and garbage and all these things, and you can't see that far ahead of you. And then as you start to climb up the mountain, your your vantage point gets higher, but vegetation and, and life becomes less. And I believe that the path of waking up, whether you're a yogi or not, but you're just like aware of like where you are and where you're not, you have this capacity to, to see a, a bigger, broader picture and it's less personal. And mm. I know that's one of the four agreements, but it's one of the greatest teachings or, or things that I've incorporated into my own life is that it's so rarely personal. I have a part to play and I'm going to play my part fucking well, 
No one's going to play my part better than me. And in the same breath, I'm not going to be too attached to Erin's identity of, of like whatever she's putting out into the world. But as you climb the mountain of, of consciousness, awareness, being present, trauma, drama, story falls away. People fall away. And, and you're right, I never thought of it like that, but I do have the capacity to, to feel what someone is feeling. Like I, I can shift it because I, I can feel it. And, and that's, you know, that's the whole, and, and the thing is I can feel you and your energy in a yoga class as well. You know, you have this ability to transfer your own energy. I can feel the prana, right? Um, you have that energy transference. Where, smoke, um, smoke some more, Aaron and Anthony. Why don't you yeah. smoke? It <laughs> um, but it's it's you know I just basically what I'm saying is even if you're reading these ancient scriptures and you're reading things like oh you can read minds and you like every like you don't have to take it quite literally and this is the issue with translating an ancient language language like Sanskrit. And then taking, you know, excess religiosity into a literal sense, some of these superpowers um, is just the effect of being present and conscious of your surroundings, of yourself, not projecting your own thoughts and emotions onto a situation and allowing the situation to exist as it is. And when you have that clarity, you have that openness, it seems like a person has superpowers. It seems like the energy that they have is transformative or that someone can read your mind. It's like, how did you know that about me? Well, if you're present, it's pretty obvious. You're exuding this energy and I can feel it. We have these innate capacities, right? Um, one of my favorite quotes about, um, about ego and about like our personalities getting in the way of life is that your ego is just you thinking without realizing that you're thinking, right? So you're, you're thinking these thoughts and you're projecting these ideas, like you said, either about your past or about the dreams of the future or how you think the thing should be. And you're creating this smoke screen in front of yourself and you're thinking about these things without realizing that it's just your thought, right? Oh, I love it. And I, and I lately I've been thinking about it. Somebody was jackhammering outside my uh, door and mm -hmm. so, or outside my home and it was like, and I, I was thinking about the qualities of the mind and how in the Yoga Sutras, I've, I've been writing about them. And we constantly have this background hum of in our heads. And we've been taught that thinking is the highest, right? We go to school to learn to think. But you're right, like this chronic, constant thinking is, is actually prohibiting me from landing in this moment. It's keeping me stuck in the past. And so the whole intention is to figure out your, the apparatus that interprets the entire world. And my teacher says, there is no world, there's your mind that's making the world. Right. And so I wanna know, how does Erin's little ego function? Okay, so, she, so she, she really likes to be competition. Okay, she likes to be in competition. So then how do I use that in a positive way or how do I cap it and track it and watch it and why it's not really helpful? You know, it's funny you said schools are where you learn to think, but I think you, I think you don't, schools don't actually teach you how to think. They implant different thoughts that they think that they believe you should have. 
but yoga is actually a system on how to think like if you just leave your mind and you don't intend to think anything it's going to think thoughts on its own and it's going to run on its own it's going to have that jackhammer right you we we for the most part don't know how to focus our minds enough to think by our own volition to think by our own intention with our own focus and yoga for me one of the one of the, you know I, I go through different phases with what i believe yoga is as a system right and one of the things that keeps coming back to me is yoga is a system to teach you how to focus because principally if uh, the second yoga sutra i think is is yoga is the cessation of fluctuations of the mind yoga chitta which is like so if you can cease the fluctuations of your mind i.e the thoughts just happen without you doing anything like if you just sit and, and don't say anything but you pay attention to the thoughts you have they're random they're all over the place and you get lost in them but yoga is a system to teach you how to calm those fluctuations and then think intentionally right it's actually teaching you how to think which is That's cool a good way to it's such a good way to put it because be, before you reach flow state in terms of yoga it you've got your vritti which is the fluctuation of thought and then you you teach yourself to have a higher thought and they call it a pravritti so if i know that the mind is naturally argumentative right left hot cold good bad i can turn that on itself and be like okay what's up okay my shoulders are up what's down my feet are down and so I, I go in the back door, not in a creepy, perverted way, but I go in the back door through my mind to figure out, okay, so your mind is naturally doing that, Erin. So then use it on your yoga mat when you're running in the mountains, when you're having a conversation with another, so that it still gets to do what it loves to do. Mm. And I forget if it was Young who said that the mind is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. But that's it. And I know that the mind loves to observe and watch. So I let my mind do that, but I'm but I'm 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 putting it in a particular place. I'm not letting it um observe the the sexy person behind me in downward dog. I'm like, no, no, no. Stay in your fingertips. Like observe your toes. And you're right, like it is a system that then it's it's vritti, fluctuation, out of control. I'm hungry, I'm horny, I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm I'm tired, and then I and then I teach it like, okay, so I'm gonna just focus on um, where does hunger live in my belly, and mm. then you start to go nirvriti, which is like an absence of thought, because you've trained the mind so well that you don't need to think those thoughts anymore. So it's pretty cool. The progression, would you say? So so just to play back some of the Sanskrit terminology, a vritti would be like a thought or a fluctuation in your mind that happens automatically. A parvriti would be you noticing that thought and thinking something higher on top of it. And then a nirvriti would be the state in which you're so present that the thought doesn't happen at all. Yeah, the samskara disappears and there's no residue and there's no karma. So a samskara for the listener, it's, it's your mind thinks the same thoughts all the time. So 90% of what we think are repeats. And so a samskara, you, you've thought this thought so many times, you've, you've uh, locked your door the same way so many times that it's just the easiest thing for the mind to do. So then when you start to say, no, I'm not gonna think that I'm inadequate anymore, I'm gonna change that pattern, and, and that's a higher vritti, I'm not inadequate, I'm just not done yet. And then 
eventually it's, it's not necessary anymore because I know now that residue of you're not good enough, you're not good enough doesn't prevail. That's really interesting. So I used to teach habit courses and what you just explained, there's actually like a neurophysiology to repeating the same thing and it becoming an imprinted part of you. When you start doing something, like say you're learning how to drive a car, the part of your brain that is responsible for figuring out, okay, I got to check the mirror, I got to adjust my, my wheel, I got to change the stick, I got to pump the brakes. You're, you're focusing on all these different factors individually and um, your cerebral cortex, the outer layer of your brain is responsible for that. The more you repeat it though, your, your behaviors become chunked and then your basal ganglia kind of imprints this chunked behavior and that's how you end up being able to, you know, drive and check your mirror and you can talk and you're texting while you're driving, which you shouldn't do because you'll kill someone, you know, <laughs> but your basal ganglia will actually chunk these behaviors down and run them automatically as, as behavior patterns without you thinking. When I was teaching uh, breaking habits, it was becoming aware of these chunked patterns and interjecting with a conscious, conscious thought or conscious intention beforehand until you replace the pattern with something intentional and you weren't even thinking about it before. So there's this neurophysiology where it's like, you do have to interject with consciousness first, i.e. the higher part of your brain, the cerebral cortex, the last part of the brain that humans evolved, which is responsible for complex consciousness, um, to override the automatic behaviors of the basal ganglia. So that's literally, you know, like yogis are talking about this thousands of years ago, and this is a neurophysiological phenomenon that just we evolved to, to experience, right? So that's that's pretty phenomenal. And and yoga really is that process. It is this process of allowing yourself to be more engaged and more first of all, I just can I just say like I'm so excited to read your book. Oh like, like dying for you to send me the email of the first chapter. I'm just like I'm so excited to read it. It's almost ready. Good. So can we dive in a little bit to the second pada and give people a groundwork for, you know, for the people listening, for the people who have no idea about what the eight limbs of yoga are, they've never even heard of the yoga sutras. If someone was like, how do I start practicing yoga philosophy? What are the eight limbs and what can people start doing? What's the first step? Okay. So first of all, if I ever have another child, I'm going to name it basal ganglia. <laughs> <laughs> Or if I ever get a date, if I ever get a date, that's going to be my, like, sexy little name for the person. Like, oh, my little basal ganglia. <laughs> anyway, okay. So the eight limb path, similar to, uh, like, the Ten Commandments. And so a sin, an original sin, and that belief that a baby comes into the world and is sinned or is a sinner, the idea is that they broke away from God. And then they forgot that they are of God. And I don't mean a person in the sky. I mean like this high self of, of just love. You don't need to be anything. You deserve it. You are love. So you broke away from that and you started to think that you were separate. You got an identity. People were like, wow, Anthony, you're so, um, you're so good at coaching people. Oh, you're such a good listener. So you follow those little breadcrumbs of like, oh, this is what people like. This is what I'm good at. So we develop these identities, these cravings, these aversions, these addictions. So the eight limb path, similar to the 10 commandments is a pathway back 
to my wholesome self, my wholest self. Again, they could be considered um, spokes on a wheel or you could do one at, one at a time. And so we first of all have the yamas and the yamas are the way that we wanna treat the people and the world around us. We've got ahimsa, which is to not strike. It translates directly as not to lash out. And it means non-harming. So some folks might think it means being vegan. Some people it might mean being kind to your neighbor, but it's just this idea of try not to create more harm in the world. We've got satya, which is truthfulness, knowing that we cast spells with our words. So we're gonna be conscious of what we say. We're gonna avoid uh, creating more uh, problems in the world and our families in our communities by what we say or don't say. We've got asteya, non-stealing. Brahmacharya, which is abstinent. So it's not necessarily like cut off all enjoyment. It's moderation and to understand that our sense pleasures are always trying to find pleasure. That's their job. We have uh, a paragraha, which is non-hoarding. Information, items, time, you name it. I'll be fast. And then the next limb is the niyamas. And so this is the way that we want to treat ourselves. And there's five of them as well. The first is purity or socha, which is cleanliness. For a yogi, it's going from the periphery of the body. So first of all, it's my skin, it's my body, then it's the food that I eat, and then it's how I keep my home. And then deeper than that, it's, it's how I keep my mind. A friend of mine is a shaman and he often asks me, how's the weather today? And I know that he's not asking about the patterns of the atmosphere. He's asking like, where's your head at, girl? Like, how are you? Like, are you in a good space? So that's the intention is like, you clean the body and you clean your home because this is where you want God to dwell, high self to dwell. And then you, you weed your mental garden. We've got Santosha, which is contentment, which is one of the biggest things that my clients struggle with is they hit a goal, they start their business, they make that amount of money, and they're still not happy. <laughs> so contentment is ease and grace and understanding that there is not a hierarchy of people, experiences, or emotions, and yet we think being happy is good and being sad is bad. So it's, it's removing the hierarchy of, of what we believe is good and bad, success and failure. Tapas, which is fire, the, 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 the desire to get on the mat or put your running shoes on and like get after it. We've got Pariyaya, which is the study of the self. So I'm watching the way Aaron speaks. More than that though, it's studying great people that understood something we can't explain in words. So we're, we're studying scripture and poetry and, and music in order to understand what cannot be described because we are that. And then we have Ishvara Pranadana, which is a bowing or an honoring to the highest self or the person, the thing responsible for the seasons changing, responsible for everything in our matrix. So those are the, the like moral codes that we wanna operate from. And then the next limbs are, are, they go a little bit 
more into sadhana practice. We've got breath work, mm -hmm. physical yoga postures, pratyahara, which is to go inward, to stop following the desire senses so much. Dharana, which is concentration, you mentioned that. It's this ability to um, flex the muscle of focus, stay a moment longer in something that you used to find boring. Dhyana, which is my great aunt. No, I'm just kidding. It sounds like <laughs> it, meditation. And then finally, the, the last limb on the eight limb path is flow, absorption. And I think of it like if I owned a business and I had a, I had a stamp that said my business's name, let's just say basil ganglia, ganglia. So I would stamp my product with that and it's my stamp of approval. So it's, I am the owner of beautiful and I'm the only one that knows what I believe is beautiful. And that is flow state, mm. absorption. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I like, so, so for, for those who don't understand or are kind of like lost, basically, if, if I was going to simplify it, it's like you start with almost like a system of ethics and values to make your life less chaotic, right? The, because if you're, if you're nonviolent, you're not stealing, you're not creating more complicated karma for yourself, and it's going to be easier to generate a, a, a situation where you can focus more and you can be more free from you know, trying to fix all your problems. If you're nonviolent, you're not going to have to deal with the consequences of a fight. If you're, uh, like, if you're telling the truth, you're not going to have to get caught in a web of lies and keep telling more lies to, to do that, basically. It, it simplifies your life and makes it easier to practice. Then you have the niyamas, which would be, you know, just taking care of yourself and understanding yourself, right? There's basic cleanliness, like taking a freaking shower. <laughs> after you have a sweaty yoga practice um and then there's contentment and not you know getting getting too wrapped up in the, the this idea of worldly success that doesn't mean you let go of ambition altogether it just does, it means that you're aware of the fact that happiness isn't in the future and and adhering to that principle or tapas is just basic discipline everyone needs discipline you need to be disciplined in order to focus because focus the you, know, you can't get into a flow state if you don't have the discipline to practice the skills that will allow you to get into a flow state, right? And then once you have these basics down, once you have these, these, these outward observances towards the world and towards yourself, the actual, uh, you know, the postures and the seats and the sensory withdrawal and all the other meditative practices are going to be easier because your life is less complicated. Yoga starts with like a simplification of your own life, of your own personality, of your own ideals, so that when you get into the more complicated philosophical stuff, you're not trying to deal with a bunch of drama in your life. You're not trying to deal with a bunch of inner drama in your life either. You're also not a lazy person. You know how to discipline yourself. You know how to get off your ass and do the things that you need to do, and you're not afraid to work for what you want, right? So, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, for, for most people who think that yoga is either, you know, getting onto a mat and, you know, being able to do the splits or handstands, or it's about being a monk with a big long beard meditating in the Himalayas, it starts with just not being a violent person. It starts with telling the truth. It starts with not stealing physical, emotional, or 
temporal things from other people. It starts with kind of understanding who you are as a person so that you can let go of who you are as a person to feel that peace, right? So that's, that's you know, for, for, for anyone who's looking to start this exploration, start with, uh, you know, those yamas and niyamas, get really, really good at those, and the rest gets really, really easy, right? I have a question. Which of the yamas do you have the hardest time with in terms of nonviolence, truthfulness, not stealing, the brahmacharya, so we say like, I don't know, chastity or restraint, or the aparigraha, like the, the sort of possessiveness? Which one do you have the hardest time with? Well, because I haven't had sex since the 80s, <coughs> I would say... <laughs> <laughs> I would say, no, honestly, though, brahmacharya, this idea of abstinence, I feel like I'm almost so abstinent or so restrained in a serious way with like moderation and control and like getting on my mat and being meticulous that I, I believe that some of the joys of life I can take away because I'm so... Uh, I can be so uh, one pointed in my work that I do feel like sometimes I'm a little too restrained, a little too guarded. Right. Uh, but in all honesty, maybe it's it's truthfulness, honesty. Mm. And why, why is that? Where where do you find yourself? Because I know you're, you're not a person who like will outright tell lies to manipulate people, but and and not a lot of people are. But most people, I think, tell little white lies to either avoid hurting people's feelings or to avoid conflict or, you know, where, where do you find telling the truth is like a harder thing for you? I think I'm quintessentially Canadian and I hate conflict and I'm so concerned about an, uh, like a fight or a, a disruption to our ecosystem, you and I, that I might hold back from sharing a piece of information if you hurt me or or like I said something I shouldn't have said, I find it really, really challenging to feel safe to have mm. conflict. Right. And I, yeah, and so I think it's a matter of trying to be more and more honest in my close relationships, knowing that those people will love me regardless. And then I'll get a little more confident being honest and yeah, saying no when I mean no. I know in my experience, you know, even if there's short-term conflict, there's long-term trust, and there's there's a deepening of the relationship where if if a person can trust you to tell you the truth about something that's uncomfortable or something that they know you don't want to hear, then almost paradoxically, they'll, they'll love you more, they'll trust you more, even if they really don't want to hear it, even if it hurts their ego, or they freak out at you for a second, and it's really uncomfortable, you're both crying because you have to tell the, uh, an uncomfortable truth or have some sort of conflict, that's where relationships really build, that's where we really, on the brahmacharya thing, by the way, I think that was like, it's interesting that you find it's almost too much, there is an interpretation of brahmacharya that I really liked, which was thinking about the root of the word, which is a Brahma. And a Brahma was someone back in the day who was focused on, well, Brahma is the highest principle in, in the Brahma Sutras, in Hinduism, in some of these Vedantic scriptures of which yoga is, is, is a part. Brahma is the highest, right? And Brahmacharya is a focus on the highest. So it's not necessarily an abstinence completely 
or a, you know like an ascetic monk sort of like giving up everything in the world but it's no matter what you're doing your eyes are already always on the highest your intention is it's sort of like in in buddhism when you take some of the vows you don't take a vow to not drink alcohol you take a drink to not get drunk you know you, do, you don't take a vow to not have sex you ha you take a vow to not you know do adultery basically and ruin someone's marriage and, and cause a bunch of trouble it's basically it's if you're going to indulge in these things don't let it detract you don't let it become a false idol to replace the highest principle don't let sex replace god don't let sense pleasures replace freedom from uh, because ultimately it can become another form of bondage so a brahmacharya is someone who can experience these sense pleasures and still remain free from them someone who uh you know can can acknowledge that they're horny and go have sex but they're still not you know their whole life isn't just about getting the next lay or getting the next great meal or trying to you know get the next validation spike from social media it's someone who is always focused on the highest principle while also still enjoying life and if you can't do that then you have to give it up but like yeah. <laughs> it's well staying put. free while you're enjoying it right yeah so you're a life coach too and obviously these principles of yoga have helped you grow tremendously as a person do you find that you avoid speaking in yoga terms when you're coaching life coaching clients or do you lean into it a lot or like what's your approach how do you blend your your two roles as like a yoga teacher and a life coach i use a lot of the spirituality in my coaching and a lot of my clients are not super spiritual people not everybody is but they're business people that are you know hustling to be successful but i find that it's really refreshing for them because when you're in a, in a world of striving and upward mobility, you can become so consumed with that next goal of making $20,000 a week or whatever the goal might be. So for me to bring them back down to earth and say, okay, but are, but are we enjoying it? And, and is your intention accurate? Because if you're left feeling terrible when you made 18 grand in a week, we have a problem here. There's a disconnect because you're not satisfied. And I think ultimately people are looking for the vanishing moment. I think people want to be more present. And you mentioned it perfectly. You said there's a time for ambition, but we cannot be attached to the fruits of our labor. So I would say the premise of my coaching and some folks are like high performers, like high performers. And, and as much as I want them to make double what they're making a week, I also, more importantly, want them to enjoy the moment that they're in. I think the biggest piece of coaching that has changed my life is this ability to validate someone's experience. And it's wild how in that validation, a lot of the energy around a situation just sort of fades away. So what do you mean by validation of someone's experience? How does, how does one's experience become validated? Let's say that I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so tired. I'm raising this kid on my own. I'm working my tail off. I just feel like I don't get any support. A validation for that would be like, I can, like I could see why you feel that way. You are working a full-time job. You're cooking meals. You're bathing this kid. You're also giving him a sense of enjoyment. 
I can see why it feels overwhelming. Boom, Aaron feels satiated, like, yeah, okay, thank you for seeing me. Now let's move on. Right, so how do you move on from, because sometimes I find I'll, I'll look for the validation, but then stay stuck in that story, right? Someone's like, oh, I can see. It's like, yeah, you can see because it sucks because I'm here, right? So how do you transition from that like, oh, thank you for seeing me to the moving on? Like, how do you transform the narrative? Or how do you, like, if you're, if you're an, you know, you're an exhausted single mother and you just told me, it's like, I can, I totally get it. How do I get you past that mindset or that that mental story how do you how do you change the narrative after someone's been validated how do you shift from validation to shifting the narrative so i might say that you aaron believe that your dharma right now is to meditate and write a book but your dharma right now is to raise a kid and that's a pretty big amazing dharma so what do you love or or what is it that you want to share or teach this little person so I often will take them into the intention behind why they're doing what they're doing. And that might indicate that they, they need to kill their child or sell their child or like put them up for adoption. I'm just kidding. But, you know, like to go back to the, the reason why we're doing what we're doing and, and what a high honor to be able to raise a person. What a high honor to have a family. And yet we get preoccupied by all the stresses. But that's not even real. What's real? That's not even real. When Erin feels overwhelmed, like it's not even real. Like she, when her boy is in front of her, she can land with her boy. But it's just when people get caught in the head trip of how am I going to send him to university? And I need to make more money. And what if he gets addicted to meth and all these stories that I create? So I often pull folks back into why are you doing this? Like, what is it about mothering that you like? that just like makes you smile? What is it about that relationship that lights you up? It would depend on the client and the situation, but. I, I suppose, but what I'm, what I'm hearing is, it sounds like you're taking these situations, you're taking this feeling of overwhelm, and then you're, you're validating it, which makes it a little bit lighter. And that validation, that lightness opens it up for like, I get it, but also what are you grateful for? What, what's the good? What's your purpose? Like you wouldn't be doing this if you didn't feel like you had to or wanted to in some way. And you're you're almost like, you're not necessarily saying, don't feel that way. You're saying, you're trying to find the reason behind it and connect to the why and and elevate emotions through through a sense of purpose, through a sense of meaning, right? And And often it isn't, they're overwhelmed at parenting. Often they haven't paid their visa bill and they yeah. haven't, fix the leak at the sink. Like oftentimes someone's complaint, there's something underneath of it that's not even about parenting. Right. It's like that's often true. just like clearing the cobwebs of what somebody's actual issue is. Right. Um, so there's there's usually some sort of like deeper, deeper issue behind. Or, deeper or even, issue. Or like a simple issue, right? Like It's can, often very simple. That's actually my biggest takeaway from people is it's often very simple. I, I, I mean, like I've, I've had moments in my life where I thought I was like full blown depressed and then I would go hang out with you for an afternoon. I'd be like, Oh no, I'm fine. Right. I just haven't seen people in a while. I'm like thinking, Oh, the world's going to end and like everything's terrible. Then we hang out for an afternoon and I'm like, 
oh no, I was just socially isolated for three weeks because I was working so much and I didn't have friends. Duh, like, <laughs> you know, like the world, the world isn't ending. I'm just, uh, I'm just too much in a bubble, right? And there's, there's oftentimes there's that whole thing where we can create our own suffering in our head. We're thinking without realizing we're thinking we're not aware of our own needs. And that's where that, uh, that coming back to the presence, that coming back to the, the, the self-inquiry, the svadhyaya, right? The, um, the self, the self introspection. That's, that's where the practice of yoga comes in. So Aaron, I don't know if you've been, this is your first time on no filter, right? Yeah. It so is. no filter is really cool because it's a platform that we have, uh, we have five people in this stream, including you and me, we have Jordan, Steven and Michelle are all here. So hi Hello, guys. Hi. And, um, it's an interactive platform, right? So we have a live chat. We can see who's talking to us in the live chat and then we have the knock feature. So if anyone wanted to knock, you can see that little button with the fists down there and you can actually knock and join us in the stream. So if anyone had any questions for Aaron before we wrapped up, you can either let us know in the chat, you can jump on the knock button and you can join the stream directly yourself and you could ask her questions about yoga, about life coaching. Uh, if you're listening to this on Spotify or on iTunes or on another streaming platform, you can come see these live on nofilter.net and you can join us for the next one. But uh, Stephen Luker was just saying it's a really good interview. Um, if anyone had any questions, feel free to let us know. Um, Aaron can be found on Instagram at Aaron underscore Evans, and I am at Anthony.Manuel, M-A-N-U-E-L-E. -E. You can also follow NoFilter at NoFilterNet. Um, and then Aaron, I like to wrap up with just like the sort of, I, I, like one-liners are such a, a, such a hit and miss, you know, because, because, you know, how much can you actually get from a one-liner? But, uh, if you were going to leave someone totally new to yoga, totally new to the yoga sutras with one piece of advice on how to approach the practice, how to use it in their life someone who's just starting. I know for me, you, the first one that you said was go read about the yamas, go learn about ahimsa. And that sent me down a whole other path, which was absolutely crazy. Um, but what would be the one piece of advice you would give to people who are just starting? You are so fortunate that you have a physical body and marvel at this remarkable body it is the easiest way into the present moment. Mm. Cool. And that's, that's so, so marvel at your body and allow it to bring you into the present and, and, and don't neglect it as a tool to become present. You got it. Amazing. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you guys for joining us on the stream today. If you want to, Check us out on nofilter.net. My name is Anthony Manuel. You can watch the stream replay video style in my vault. You can check us out on at nofilter.net on Instagram and on Twitter. Thanks so much, guys. Have a wonderful day.